Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with David Glasgow, author of Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and Justice. How are you doing today? I'm great. How about you? Great. Thank you for being on the podcast. I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project. Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, my name is David Glasgow. I'm the executive director of the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging at NYU School of Law. And uh, my co-author, Kenji Yoshino, and I wrote this book, Say the Right Thing, uh, which is about, you know, how to navigate uh, difficult conversations about issues of identity, diversity, and justice. And, you know, we got involved on this project because we work at a research center that focuses on issues of diversity and inclusion. And we kept encountering a barrier in the work that we do with organizations and with individuals from a variety of industries and backgrounds, which is that a lot of people we interact with really support the values of diversity and inclusion. They want to treat people with respect. They want to create environments of greater belonging inside their institutions, but they're terrified of saying the wrong thing. And so often what happens is these allies, you know, retreat in fear from these conversations. And so we wanted to write a guidebook to really help them, you know, overcome their fears so that they can uh, do this work with greater confidence. What led you into the field of diversity and inclusion? So my background is as a lawyer, I practiced uh, employment and anti-discrimination law. And so that's obviously adjacent to diversity and inclusion because it's thinking about the kind of legal compliance angle around, you know, when is someone mistreated in a workplace to the extent that it's actually legally actionable, uh, like discrimination or harassment. But I became sort of much more interested in well, what else can be done above the law? You know, when I um, became a lawyer, uh, if, if I'm honest, I never really intended to kind of be, uh, stay a lawyer for a really long time. I was much more interested in the kind of more broader social, political, personal dimensions of a lot of the issues that the law touches on. And I quickly realized that the law is never going to be able to create an inclusive climate all on its own. You know, so much of the day-to-day experience that people have in the workplace or at school, how they're treated by other people, these are things that the law is never going to be able to touch. And it actually requires all of us to pitch in to create that inclusive climate. And so that's what brought me to be much more interested in this work, which is about building inclusive cultures above and beyond what the law requires. Can you tell the audience why it's so important for people to have these conversations? Absolutely. Well, one of the um, biggest reasons why it's important is that, you know, these conversations are going to come to you, you know, whether you want to have them or not, because increasingly, uh, you know, if you're in the workplace, uh, these kind of issues of diversity, equity and inclusion are cropping up. Uh, Younger people who are coming into the workforce, as as an interviewee for this book told me, uh, Gen Zers and, and millennials coming into the workplace are really fired up and wanting to have conversations about how to create more, you know, racial equity or gender equity inside the company. And so I think you're going to be faced with these conversations, whether you want to have them or not. Same within educational institutions. And 
conversations about diversity and inclusion issues are happening younger and younger. I think it, it, it's been very common in a university setting to talk about identity issues, but that's becoming increasingly more prevalent in you know K through 12 education as well. Um, and then I think it's really important because you know, we at least, you know, I'm I'm writing, we wrote this book from the United States uh, and, you know, within the US, but globally as well, people are just becoming much more conscious of issues of diversity. Societies are themselves diversifying. So the United States, the proportion of people of color in the United States is rising. The proportion of LGBTQ people is rising. And so with those rising numbers and those changing demographics, uh, people are driving conversations about these issues and they want to actually have more of a voice and challenge perhaps practices that they've tolerated for a long time that they have not enjoyed. And so I think for members of ally groups, so for people who belong to more dominant or majority groups in society, I think it's a really good opportunity to stop and reflect on whether or not you're showing up to these conversations in the way that you want to. What about social media? Has this made people more aware of diversity and inclusion? Yes. I mean, I I worry a little bit about social media because I think on the one hand, it's certainly made people more aware of of these issues. So if you think about, you know, big social media driven protest movements like Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement, for example, you know, I think social media has been a huge driver of awareness and activism around some of these topics. On the other hand, I think any user, regular user of social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook also knows that it's been a driver of a lot of conflict and misinformation and polarization and a lot of people who aren't really engaging in effective conversations through those platforms because the aim of those platforms often is to get as much engagement as you can get, uh, as many clicks, as many retweets as you can get. And having kind of thoughtful, nuanced conversations is often not the way to get that kind of engagement. So my co-author and I actually thought about writing a whole chapter in the book devoted to issues of social media at one point, but we ultimately abandoned it because we felt that in order to display the kind of character traits and virtues that we want to build in these conversations, like curiosity and resilience, it's just much more important, I think, to have these difficult conversations offline, to have them in living rooms and and classrooms and boardrooms, because social media just kind of creates the wrong incentives, we think. It kind of incentivizes bad behavior in people. Well, let's start talking about the principles that you went over in your book. Principle one, tell us about the conversational traps. Yeah, so principle one is where we kind of outline, we tell people to beware the four conversational traps, and they are avoid, deflect, deny, and attack. So we shorten that often to the acronym ADDA. And really, the purpose of this chapter is to help people identify, you know, are there any areas in my own life where perhaps I'm not showing up to these conversations in the most optimal way that I would like to? Are there areas where perhaps I'm avoiding or deflecting or denying or attacking? So avoid is where it is what it sounds like. You maybe walk out of the room, you look at your phone, you fall completely silent in the room when an issue of identity or diversity comes up because you don't want to say the wrong thing or you don't say what you really think. So you avoid sharing your actual opinion. Deflect is where 
you change the subject. So you're participating in the conversation, you're not running away, but you find uh, another topic that you would prefer to talk about and you change it over to that subject. So a very common form of deflection would be to deflect to someone else's tone. So you might say, well, you know, you may have a point, but I really don't like the way that you raised it just now. That was disrespectful, the way that you just spoke to me. Or you might deflect to your own good intentions, you know, oh, I'm sorry it came across like that, but I didn't mean it. Um, That wasn't my intention. Or you might deflect to your own moral credentials and talk about what a great person you are and how you grew up in a diverse neighborhood, for instance. Deny is where you don't change the subject. So you stick with the subject, but you just put up a wall and you just tell the other person essentially that they're wrong, no questions asked. So you might completely deny the facts that they're presenting to you, or you might deny them their feelings. You might suggest that their feelings are illegitimate or wrong in some way in the conversation. And then attack is where you really make it personal. You go after the other person with insults or sarcasm, eye rolling, or some other kind of personal or vicious sort of attack. And, you know, we think that these four behaviors are, they're very common, but they're very human, right? We all get defensive sometimes, avoid and deflect a kind of like flight reactions where you kind of run away from the conversation and deny and attack a fight reactions where you stay in your corner and fight. But we don't you know, share these to say that you're a bad person if you engage in these forms of behavior because we all engage in them from time to time. It's more just to surface these unhelpful forms that you can do a bit of a self-diagnosis and think about whether or not some of these traps might be ones that you fall into. Principle two, building resilience. Tell us about that growth mindset you talked about in that chapter. Yeah, so building resilience is about uh, generating the kind of emotional groundedness so that you can engage in these conversations without uh, engaging in ADDA behavior. And we think that in order to do that, you really need to be able to push through the discomfort that these conversations often generate um, and stick with the conversation. So a growth mindset, you know, many of your listeners may be familiar with the basic concept of a growth mindset, which is from the psychologist Carol Dweck. She famously distinguishes between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. So when you're doing a challenging task, let's say you're learning a musical instrument and you make a mistake, uh, some individuals will respond to that with a fixed mindset, meaning I think that my talents, my abilities, my skills are innate. I'm either good at something or I'm not good at it. So if I fail, if I make a mistake during this while I'm playing this musical instrument, it must mean that I'm bad at it and I should just give it up. Whereas a growth mindset is where you view mistakes more as opportunities to learn and grow. So you think I can actually cultivate my skills and my abilities by putting in greater effort. And Dweck's research indicates that students or professionals who have a growth mindset tend to achieve more in their life, be more successful or able to recover more easily when they make mistakes. But as the psychologist Dolly Chug points out, often in this arena of diversity and inclusion, we tend to adopt a fixed mindset. And that's because the consequences of failure just seem so great. I mean, if I make a mistake when I'm learning a new language, I don't think that that makes me a terrible human being. Whereas if I make a mistake in a conversation about race or a conversation about gender, 
I will tend to think, well, now I've just been turned into a racist or I've been turned into a sexist. And because that threat is just so overwhelming, uh, we have a tendency then to slip into a kind of fixed mindset. And then we don't actually learn from that. We just shut down and engage in avoid, deflect, deny, or attack behavior. And so what we really encourage in the book is to try to carry over that same growth mindset that you might apply when you're learning a language or a musical instrument and try to apply it in this context as well. So if you make a mistake or you don't understand how to talk about something, let's say you think to yourself, well, I don't just, I don't understand this pronoun stuff. I don't understand this gender identity and pronouns. You might add the word yet to that and say, well, I don't understand it yet, but I can learn it. I can try. And if I make a mistake with it, well, I can dust myself off and try again. That's a much healthier attitude to take to these conversations than a fixed mindset. Explain the rain ring theory and how it helps with difficult conversations. Yeah, the ring theory is from the psychologist uh, Susan Silk and her friend Barry Goldman. And uh, it originally they came up with this not as a diversity and inclusion concept, but rather a concept for how to support people in crisis. So let's say you have cancer and um, or your friend has cancer rather you know Susan Silk gives the example of you know someone wanting to visit the friend in hospital and then uh, being told um, by the by the person with cancer oh no I don't want any any visitors at hospital I'd prefer to just you know be here on my own and then the friend saying to the person with cancer well it's not about you right it's 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 I, I want to visit you and you can't make me not visit you um, and that the reaction often of the person who is in crisis, who's experiencing that that cancer diagnosis, would be to say, well, how is this not about me? This is about my condition. You're supposed to be supporting me. And Susan Silk's point here is, if you're helping someone going through crisis, it's okay to have painful, negative emotions. You're allowed to feel hurt. You're allowed to feel guilty. You're allowed to feel whatever else you want to feel in that moment. But you just shouldn't dump out those negative emotions to the person who's in crisis who you're trying to support. Rather, what you should do is talk to people in your own circle, in your own, you know, your own friends or your own, uh, your spouse at home, for example, rather than dumping into the person in the center. And so we apply that concept to allyship as well. So think about someone experiencing bias or exclusion and think of them in the middle of a, of a set of concentric rings and then draw other concentric rings around that person. And in each ring, you want to put someone who's one step removed from the person going through the, the crisis or the difficult situation. So let's say you have a colleague at work who is, let's say they're a black woman and they're experiencing bias and they're talking to you about that. They would be in the center circle. You would then draw yourself in the next circle out and then you would draw your friends and your family, your spouse in the circle out beyond you. And so the rule is comfort in, but dump out. So if you have your own negative emotions, you're allowed to dump them out to your friends. What you shouldn't do is speak to the colleague who's going through the crisis or the difficulty and dump out your negative emotions on them. Principle three, cultivating curiosity. Tell us about what happened during COVID and what that revealed. Yeah, well, I think one of the things about um, COVID that we write about in the book is that, you know, it was quite hard sometimes, at least in, in our uh, work environment, to 
sort of realize how people were, you know, coming across to others. So we tell a story in the in that chapter about how, you know, when people were switching over to having, you know, Zoom calls, virtual meetings instead of meeting in person, for the first time, often people were getting a window into how other people live, you know, seeing their environments, seeing their their apartments or their houses. And, you know, one of the issues that we encountered with some of our clients was that they said that a lot of the uh, more senior people in the organization were making uh, a lot of the more junior people or their administrative staff feel bad because, you know, the senior people were dialing in from their you know, mansions or dialing in from the Bahamas or wherever else they'd managed to escape to during COVID while, you know, their assistants are dialing in with, you know, spotty internet connections from small apartments, right, and feeling embarrassed about the surrounds that they live in by comparison to the uh, people at the top of the organization. And so, you know, one of the people we interviewed for the book said, you know, they just didn't realize how they were making other people feel. And so I think what this is really kind of getting at is the idea that, you know, it's really important in these conversations to um, both uh, expect that other people's lives are very different from your own life and then to display curiosity toward how other people might be experiencing similar circumstances to you, but they might be experiencing it radically differently from you. In these conversations, there's always so much that we don't know and we don't even know that we know. And so it's really important to display radical humility and curiosity when you're speaking with others. Principle four, disagreeing respectfully. Tell us about that courtesy skill that you developed. Yeah, so, you know, one of the frustrations that we had when we were thinking about, you know, how can people disagree with each other in these conversations um, is that oftentimes the disagreement means something very different to the two parties who are engaged in the disagreement. So if you imagine... Let's say, you know, you imagine the subjects of disagreement being plotted along a straight line from left to right. So we call this the controversy scale. So on the very far left of the scale might be a disagreement over personal tastes. So if you and I are disagreeing over our favorite ice cream flavor, for example, you know, that's a pretty simple, easy disagreement to have. Neither of us are probably going to get particularly upset having that disagreement. Now imagine you move slightly over to the right on the scale and we're disagreeing over facts, not not values disguised as facts, but actual journalistic facts like who, what, when, how. That's going to be a slightly more complicated conversation than a disagreement over tastes, but it's still going to be relatively easy compared to if we're disagreeing over policies or if we're disagreeing over values. And then if you move further over to the right on the scale, on the very far right end of the controversy scale is a disagreement over someone's equal humanity. That's where we think that the most tricky, most controversial disagreements are going to arise. And so often in these conversations, members of affected groups, groups affected by a lot of these issues of bias and exclusion, are at a very different point on that controversy scale to members of more dominant or majority groups or ally groups on that spectrum. So just to take an example, uh, one of the big subjects of disagreement that we see a lot these days, if we read the news, is around how issues of race are taught in the classroom in schools. A lot of parents getting very upset about how race, racial issues are taught, protesting at their local school boards and so forth. 
Now, often, you know, if you're, say, a parent of a white child and you're disagreeing on about the race curriculum, you might think that you're just disagreeing about an issue of policy. You might be thinking, well, I'm just disagreeing about, you know, what's the appropriate curriculum for a child in this particular class and, you know, how should this particular historical event be taught? Whereas if you're engaging in that conversation with a parent of color who has a, you know, a child of color in that classroom, they might be experiencing the conversation much more as a strike at their equal humanity, as a disagreement over whether or not their child even gets to belong in that school. And so it's really important in these conversations to realize where you are on the controversy scale and to realize where the other person might be on the controversy scale so that when you're talking to them, you can actually display that empathy in the conversation. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to see the issue exactly the same way that they do, but you can actually show them that you understand that the issue might have deeper significance for them, that it might mean something a little bit more to them than what it means to you and to sort of uh, commit to honoring and respecting that during the conversation. Principle five, apologize. How should people apologize? Well, we think that, you know, every apology, effective apology has four elements, uh, which are recognition, responsibility, remorse, and redress. So recognition is about recognizing the harm that you caused. So oftentimes uh, people fail at this element because they use the word if. So they might say, I'm sorry if I offended you, or I'm sorry if you're upset, or if I did anything wrong, I'm so sorry. Uh, Now, all of that, you know, uh, makes it sound like the harm is uncertain. So an effective apology actually squarely acknowledges what it is that you actually did that caused the other person harm. The next element is responsibility. This is about taking personal responsibility for causing the harm. Now here, oftentimes people will fail by using the word but. So they'll say something like, I'm sorry, but I didn't mean it, or I'm sorry, but I was stressed, or I'm sorry, but I'm not a racist. And again, you know, what all of these mistakes do is they don't actually take personal responsibility. They might acknowledge the harm that was caused, but they create distance between you and and the actual offense. And so again, an effective apology kind of acknowledges and takes responsibility for that. The third is about uh, remorse. And this is really just saying, you know, communicate genuine contrition for the harm that you caused. There isn't a particular buzzword like if or but that often negates these apologies. It's more of a kind of all things considered assessment, or are you really sincerely uh, suggesting that you are sorry for what you did? And two mistakes that people often make here are, one is to, you know, underdo the remorse. So you might say or do something that calls into question whether or not you're really sorry. So a pretty gobsmacking example of this was the celebrity chef Mario Batali, who was accused of sexual harassment and then wrote an apology in his newsletter. But in the apology, it sort of was on its way to being a kind of half passable apology. But then, you know, he wrote at the bottom a PS, you know, if you're looking for a holiday inspired uh, recipe, here's a recipe for pizza dough cinnamon rolls. And so it kind of called into question, are you really sincerely remorseful about what you did if you're attaching a recipe for cinnamon rolls to your apology? 
And then the you know opposite problem is where people over apologize, they overdo the remorse. So they might go on and on, you know, saying, "Oh, I'm I'm such a terrible person. You know, what must you think of me? How terrible I feel." And the problem with that is that it actually puts pressure on the other person to then comfort and reassure you. So you're meant to be sort of conveying remorse for your behavior to them, but it kind of flips the table, and now suddenly they have to kind of comfort you. And then the final step is redress. And so redress is where you take tangible actions to repair the harm that was caused. You know, an apology can sometimes be kind of all talk, no action. And what we really want to do is encourage people not to do that. So if you uh, need to actually take steps to change your practices, to commit to not doing whatever it is that you did again, maybe check in with the other person at some future time to make sure that your post-apology behavior has matched your words. Those are all examples of what it could look like to make redress. Principle six, you talk about a rule here, and then you gave us a story about a family get-together and how a lot of bad things were said. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, we have a rule here called the platinum rule. It's not a formulation that we invented. We're borrowing the term platinum rule, but it's really getting at a kind of an enhancement of the golden rule that I think everyone is familiar with. So the golden rule is about treating other people as you would wish to be treated. And in the realm of, you know, allyship, uh, what we want to remind people of is that a lot of the time people are very different from each other. We have very different preferences from each other. And so you don't necessarily want to treat people as you would wish to be treated. You really want to think using informed empathy about how they would wish to be treated. So it's about helping people as they want to be helped. And so, you know, the example, you know, that I think that you might be referring to there with, uh, um, but correct me if I'm wrong, is about uh, a family get together where somebody, this was actually sort of during the pandemic, where um, someone made a comment uh, that there was only one person of Asian descent at this family gathering, her name was Lisa. Um, and, you know, a white family member at this family gathering sort of made some comment referring to COVID-19 as the China virus and then said, and yes, you know, I am going to call it the China virus. And everyone in that family gathering was just silent, just stunned, silent, and didn't know how to respond uh, to him in that moment. And the story that we tell in the book is that the, the person, Lisa, who you know, as I mentioned, as the only person of Asian descent at that at that gathering, just felt so alone in that moment and needed someone to speak up and um, challenge the comment about the China virus that was made and really wished and told us that she wished that someone had spoken up as an ally in that moment. And so that's to us an example of a situation where if you're at a gathering like that and you hear someone make an inappropriate comment like that, that's a real opportunity for you to think about you know, well, how might I, uh, you know, respond to the situation in a way that might be helping Lisa as she would want to be helped in that situation? Principle seven, be generous to the source. You talk about Amy here. Tell us more about that, please. Yeah. Are you referring to um, Amy Cooper here? Yes. Yes. So, this is going to be a story very familiar to many, many listeners. It was from 2020 where um, Amy Cooper uh, was a you know white woman walking her dog through Central Park and she came across a black bird watcher, um, Christian Cooper. 
And, you know, in a famous kind of video that kind of got notoriously released on Twitter and led to a lot of, I think, righteous outrage, um, she kind of threatened to call the police on Christian Cooper. He asked her to put a a leash on her dog and she refused. And then um, he started filming and then she uh, called the police and said that there was a black man, you know, threatening her um, in the park. And, you know, when we, in that, in the chapter um, principle seven, our over, overarching argument of that chapter is that it's important in most situations to display uh, generosity toward people who make mistakes. So if people make, uh, perhaps they, you know, get a point of terminology wrong or say something non-inclusive and they don't realize that it was non-inclusive or they make some other kind of mistake, maybe they use the wrong gender pronouns to refer to someone. It's really important rather than rather than immediately canceling or condemning that person to display generosity, to give them the tools to grow and learn from that mistake. But we use the story of Amy Cooper as a kind of counterexample to basically say, look, that rule that about trying to display generosity to people is not uh, an endless, uh, like you don't have to be generous in all situations. And this is a good example of where someone's behavior might just be so um, egregious, so out of bounds, or alternatively, you might just think, well, I don't know this person. I don't know Amy Cooper. Like, you know, if I were her sister, maybe I would, you know, speak with her and help her grow past this situation. But I don't want to, you know, waste my time as an ally trying to reach out to someone like that. And so we acknowledge that story really as a counterpoint to say if someone's behavior is egregious or they're outside of your own community of concern, then you don't need to display generosity in those situations. After the reader finishes your book, What is the message you want that person to leave with? You know, a big message that I want people to leave with is that these conversations don't have to be as intimidating as they might have thought. You know, I think so often we came to, as I mentioned, we came to this project because people are so terrified of them that they run away from them in fear and they don't participate in them. I would consider it to be a huge win if people, you know, close this book and then they decide, you know what? I can approach these conversations with a growth mindset. And so the next time I have a colleague or a student or a friend or a neighbor who wants to talk to me about some issue of identity or diversity affecting them, rather than, you know, making an excuse or looking at my phone or deflecting or what have you, I'm actually going to listen to them with curiosity and empathy and engage in the conversation. Like that would be a huge win from my perspective. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on? Yeah, well, we're kind of tossing around ideas for that actually right now. And one of the big issues that we're thinking about is the tremendous backlash that this field of diversity, equity, and inclusion is facing right now. We're seeing a lot of legal efforts to attack the field of diversity and inclusion. We're seeing a lot of pushback, a lot of people kind of arguing that this is all, you know, quote unquote, woke, you know, nonsense. Um, And so we're really thinking about, well, how do people who believe in this work, who care about being a good ally and a supporter of diversity inclusion, how do we push back against a lot of the kind of counterattacks and counter narratives that have developed in recent times? Well, we'll be looking forward to that project. Again, we have been talking with David Glasgow, the author of Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and Justice. Thank you. Thank you so much.